Amen. Okay. You are recording. Ready? All right, we're, we're continuing our uh, series on TV preachers, doing an evaluation on well, who we think are the most popular ones. And remember, we started off with Joel Olstein, then we went to Joyce Myers, then today is John Hagee, next week will be Joseph Prince, then T.D. Jakes will be after that, and then Andrew Womack and Benny Hinn will close it out, and then Pat's going to do a special on uh, a well-known movie and a uh, book called The Shack, which has gained a lot of uh, popularity over the years. So let's start this morning with uh, TV preachers. In general, I just want to make a couple of statements. All of the TV preachers that we are considering, uh, all the names that I just mentioned, are Pentecostal uh, to some degree or another. Uh, with some, they're more demonstrative than others. Benny Hinn would be, of course, on one end of the scale, and Joel Osteen would be on the other. Joel Osteen very rarely would make strong doctrinal statements, so he may be more generalized in his uh, biblical perspective, so to speak. Um, the areas that a Pentecostal would, be high, would highlight them by would be their pneumatology, their soteriology, their theology, and their eschatology. Let me just address them real quickly. The pneumatology of a Pentecostal, which would apply to all of these uh, speakers that I, we, I just referred to. Their view would be that the current presence that there is a current presence and use of spiritual gifts like tongues, healings, miracles, prophesying, prophesying being uh, utterances of fresh revelation that comes directly from the Lord. They hold to a second baptism of the Spirit, that is that you don't receive the baptism in fullness generally at your conversion, but rather at some subsequent time when you wait on the Lord and you ask for the second blessing to get an infilling of supernatural power to enable you to be a Christian above the norm, so to speak. I'm just touching on these. Their soteriology, they are all Arminian in their theology. Uh, their salvation, uh, they believe, is obtained by man's free will decision to accept or reject Christ. And after conversion, one has the potential to disengage their new birth by their free will choice <clears throat> to walk away. That is a very generalized statement about their Arminian uh, perspective on conversion. Ask Jesus into your heart, raise your hand, come forward, altar calls, etc. is the way in which oftentimes their gospel is presented and offered to the sinner. Their theology, for the most part, generally, is they're all dispensationalists, which means they see the Old Testament as law and the New Testament as grace, very segregated from one another. They see a radical discontinuity between Israel and the church. They see Christ's reign as postponed till the future and not in the current, which spills over into the category of their eschatology. They're all pre-tribulationalists. They're premillennialists. They hold to a Jewish millennium with Jesus returning, sitting and reigning on David's throne in Jerusalem with the rebuilding of another temple other than the tribulation temple that will be constructed and a return back to old covenant practices of offering sacrifices, shedding of blood, animals offered, etc. Feast keeping, Sabbath day keeping, etc. will all be reinstituted in that future Jewish millennium. They believe the Jews will be back in the land uh, with the temple and sacrifices reinstituted. 
So their perspective, although there's a big push on Israel being back in the land and how we view them now, the real outcome of that is that they see that the Jews are going to eventually take over the Temple Mount, that they will rebuild a temple, and that they will reinstitute the sacrificial system as is required according to the Mosaic Law. I have said that Pastor John Hagee is the most influential evangelical in the world today. And I'm going to tell you why I think he is and why I think he's dangerous. But let me first begin a little bit with his history. He was born in uh, April of 1940. His father was a pastor, and he's in the line of five pastors in his family lineage. He was educated at Trinity University of North Texas. He completed his training at Southwestern Assemblies of God in Texas. He has an oral, uh, honorary degree from Oral Roberts University and from Netanyahu College in Israel. He was married in 1960, which would mean he was 20 years old, had two children with his first wife, divorced her and then re uh, divorced her in 75, then remarried uh, another woman in 1976 and with her had three children. He is a dynamic speaker. Uh, undoubtedly, I, I've heard him numerous times of late, particularly because I've been doing this research on him. And uh, I can say that you could sit in on one of his sermons and be blown away in a positive way. You would be saying, Amen. I heard him preach the gospel this week. It was just well, it was on the internet, I believe. And I heard him preach the gospel. It was like a 40 minute message. And I could not place any flaw on anything that he said. He was flawless with his speech. He's extremely eloquent. He's well organized. He's a polished preacher. He's got a voice like a lion. He's a, he can really grip you in the audience. And um, for that, we praise God, you know, mentioning the name of Jesus and he's preaching the cross and the blood. He mentions hell and judgment, the need for repentance. So, granted, we may find some flaws for sure, but on the other hand, we have to praise God for uh, the good that's being heralded by the name of Christ in the gospel that's appropriately preached. Hagee is an author. He's a founder and a fiery senior pastor of Cornerstone Church. In the year of 1966, he founded a church called the Trinity Church. The church is located in San Antonio, Texas. <clears throat> and later in May of 1975, he resigned as the senior pastor of the church and he founded a church in that year on Mother's Day uh, that was started with 25 members. It has since been called now the Cornerstone Church. Um, started with 25 members, and then later the sanctuary and seating grew to 1,600 people, and then they built a sanctuary for 5,000 people. They named the church Cornerstone Church in 1987, and now the current membership is over 22,000 active members. Needless to say, he's on various Christian television programs. He's all over the world in his influence. He's also authored many books, including The Invasion of Demons, Jerusalem Countdown, In Defense of Israel, a book that I, I read uh, about two years ago. I just finished another book, the most recent one, I believe, that he put out called The Three Heavens, which I didn't find really any problem with that one particularly. I did with this, and I'll mention that in, in a few minutes. He wrote another book that gained probably the biggest popularity. was called The Four Blood Moons. Hmm. 
Something is about to change the subtitle. He wrote another book called, here it is, In Defense of Israel, Financial Armageddon, and a number of other books. John Hagee Ministries, as it is called, has, several, has given several millions and millions of dollars to bring Jews from the former Soviet Union to Israel, as well as millions to support Jewish orphanages and other worthy causes for the Jewish people in Israel and around the globe. He's the founder and executive director of, quote, A Night to Honor Israel, an event that expresses solidarity between Christians and Jews on behalf of Jerusalem, the State of Israel, and the United States. I'll say more about that in a minute. <clears throat> on February of 2006, Hagee and some 400 leaders from across the Christian and Jewish communities formed a new national organization called CUFI, Christians United for Israel. This organization addresses members of the United States Congress professing a biblical justification for the defense of Israel. Around this time, he received death threats for supporting Israel and has since had bodyguards standing by while preaching at his church or at speaking engagements. Kufi, this organization, has over 3.3 million members. He himself has gone to Israel over two dozen times. He meets each time with prime ministers, <coughs> going as far back as Begin, and currently now with Netanyahu. He's raised millions to bring Jews from Russia to Israel. Their annual convention, the Christians United for um, Christ organization, uh, has an annual conference in Washington, D.C., with numerous politicians on hand as members of KUFI, not goofy, koofy, I'm not trying to be sarcastic here. Uh, such members are like Joseph Lieberman, who's an Orthodox Jew and a politician from, uh, former politician here in the state of um, Connecticut. Uh, there are other notables like Glenn Beck, Dennis Pragen, Prager rather. These are two well-known national syndicated uh, show hosts. Uh, varieties of rabbis are part of the organization as well. Liberal, messianic, or otherwise... It seems as if uh, it embraces varieties of Zionists, rabbinic, Jewish people, uh, born-again evangelicals. That's certainly a strong part of them. And some of these others that are basically just in support of Israel. And it's uh, primarily from a religious standpoint, but there, are, there is a side of it, too, that because Israel in uh, their country there now, in, uh, in Palestine or Israel, whatever you want to call it, uh, there's a strong, uh, they are strongly democratic, and it's the only democratic uh, country in the Middle East, and that's one good reason why America would be and should be linked with, with Israel and the government there. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Uh, in his uh, statements, he would say, uh, for instance, if you stand with Israel and the Jews, you are on God's side. If you are not, you are not on God's side. One of the reasons why I say that John Hagee is the most influential evangelical in the world is, is exemplified by the fact that he has had personal meetings with Donald Trump. And one of the most recent ones was about a dinner that he had with him by invitation. And Donald Trump had asked him what he thought about moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And Hagee affirmed it. It said, absolutely. And then he said, well, what will the reaction of the Palestinians be? 
And he said, well, they whine all the time anyway, so it doesn't really matter. That was a private invitation that he had with Donald Trump, who asked him those questions concerning the embassy. He says, woe unto America if we don't stand with Israel. If you bless Israel, God will bless you. You either love the Jews and support them or you hate them, he says. In his book, In Defense of Israel, here are just some quotations that I want to put before you. He says about Jerusalem, it is the eternal capital of the Jewish people now and forever. He says the Jewish family are still God's family. He says, I believe the Lord wants me to do everything in my power to bring Christians and Jews together. In Matthew 25, where Jesus says, He that has done this to the least of these, my brethren, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was in prison. He says that those are Jewish people, particularly who Jesus is calling his brothers. If you take care of the Jews, the Lord will bless you in the judgment day and you will be rewarded for blessing the Jewish people, which are Jesus' brothers. And I will address whether or not that is a biblical perspective or not. John Hagee says in this book on page 14, and all of these are quotes from his book, by the way, I believe the Lord wants me to do everything in my power to bring Christians and Jews together. And just for your information, there are about 14 million Jews in the world. Half of them are outside of the country of Israel. Uh, actually, 37% are in Israel. Uh, 2.5 million of them live in Tel Aviv which is the largest Jewish population in any city in the world. It happens to be considered one of the gay capitals also of the world. And they have a gay pride parade that exceeds 200,000 people, making it one of the largest gay parade in the world. New York City has slightly under 2 million Jews, and there are approximately 500,000 Jews in Jerusalem, and most of them would be Orthodox. He says on page 84 of this book, if America forces Israel to compromise land, they are violating Scripture. What he's saying here is he does not believe in a two-state solution, which is very, very important, because if that is promoted, this obviously is going to trigger a gigantic reaction on the part of the Arabic world when, if this, if this, is advocated strongly. He says, early Christians in America, and excuse me, every Christian in America has a biblical mandate, a biblical mandate to stand in absolute solidarity with Israel and demand that of our leaders. This is the pressure that is placed on the politicians and at this night uh, to honor Israel in Washington, D.C., which I believe takes place every July, there are numerous politicians that are in attendance there, most of whom are members. And these are the kinds of things that he is on the pulpit preaching with, um, with volume and with power and with conviction, and there's nothing but a flag-raising, waving reaction to many of these kinds of statements. He says, when you see the Jewish family as the family of our Lord, they become our family to love unconditionally. He says there's no justification. This is page 125. No, page 25. 
Catch this. There's no justification that can be found in the New Testament that says that the Jews killed Jesus. Which is a big point with John Hagee. Because one of the advertisements for his book was that you will be surprised that Israel, the Jews, were not responsible for the death of Christ. It was rather plotted by the Gentile community of the Pilots and the Herods and that the Jews are not directly responsible for that. He says that Caiaphas did not represent Jewish people when Jesus was consigned to crucifixion. The verse that says, His blood be on us and our children, Hagee says, does not mean that the proof, that does not prove that the Jews are guilty of Jesus' death. He says on page 135, the Jews did not reject Jesus as Messiah. The Jews did not reject Jesus as Messiah. It was Jesus, it was the Jews who rejected the Jewish desire for him to be their Messiah. Did you catch that? The Jews did not reject Jesus as Messiah. It was Jesus who rejected the Jewish desire for him to be their Messiah. That's in John, I believe, chapter 6. Remember where they wanted to make him a king. And Jesus escaped them. You don't find any opposition to that there in that context. The two Israels, he says, are spiritual in the church. The other is physical, the Jew. The two Israels, he says, will merge together when the Messiah comes to the physical city of Jerusalem. So the church and Israel will be united together in the physical city of Jerusalem. I believe he's talking eschatologically in the future, which is not a typical view of dispensationalists. They don't believe that when Jesus comes in the rapturing of the church, they'll be caught up together with Christ, with, the, with the, those that have died, that are in the grave, be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall they ever be with the Lord. They believe it's the rapture of the church, not particularly the rapture of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, and all, all Old Testament believers, but because the church is so segregated from Israel that the rapturing is for the dead in Christ, which is for the church particularly, and not for all of converted mankind and therefore the church will supposedly forever remain segregated from Israel because the church is the bride of Christ and they view Israel as being the friend of the bridegroom that's getting a little heavy into a dispensational eschatology which I'll leave off for the moment the second covenant he says does not replace the first covenant so in other words the Jews have a special covenant relationship with God that has not been terminated. It's still in existence. Therefore, Christians should not be converting Jews because they have a special arrangement with God outside of the Christian community. It, 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 this is serious stuff. No questions at the moment. Hold, hold on till the end. Sorry. Um, he appeared with... And this is another reason why I say that this is we have to be very careful about a man like this. And I would classify him as a false prophet based on the following types of things. He appeared with Benny Hinn in 1999 on a TV show uh, of Benny Hinn's, and he stated this, that the rapture may occur in the next six months. In 2014, he titled a sermon called Eight Reasons Why America May Not Survive Till 2017. What gained the most popularity was his book and his preachings 
and teachings on the four blood moons. You probably don't know a lot about it. I'm not going to go into the details of it. It would take too much time. I'll just give you a quick overview. But this caught the media's attention. It became very well known across the country and even in various parts of the world. These are solar eclipses that he's talking about. He's classifying them as being blood moons. Astronomers do not use that language. It's his own choice of language. He's obviously borrowing that language from Acts chapter 2, verse 20, which is a citation from Joel 2, verse 20, which says, The moon shall be turned into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord. So these four solar eclipses, called four blood moons by him, occurred April 15, 2014, and October 8, that same year. Uh, April 4, 2015, and then September 28, 2015. When all of these took place, he claims that they take place on the day of Jewish festivals. The first one would have been the Passover, the second the Tabernacles, the third one the Passover again, and the fourth one Tabernacles. So because these blood moons occur on the same day as Jewish festival days, that he says something big is going to happen. Quote, something big is going to happen. Paul says, versus what John Hagee says, who says that the Jews weren't responsible for the death of Jesus. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.15, about them who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and pleased not God and are contrary to all men. They killed the Lord Jesus. Peter's preaching in the book of Acts tells them that you deny that Holy One and you chose a murderer. Guilt was obviously on their hands. They chose that and desired that. They get a little, little nervous when they were informed by the early apostles that Jesus was being seen. And then when Stephen says he sees the glory of God in Jesus, this caused them to want to kill, kill Stephen because to, to believe that Jesus was alive would mean their whole plot against killing Jesus was foiled by his resurrection. Remember, the Bible does teach that not all Israel is Israel. So we have to be careful. Who are we talking about now when we talk about Israel? Jesus says about Nathanael in John chapter 1, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. Jesus himself is sort of segregating Nathanael and ones like him who he calls are the Israelites indeed in whom there is no guile. So there's something special and that specialness we believe would be like Paul says there remains a remnant according to the election of grace. These are the ones that are truly the apple of his eyes. The scripture it says in Galatians 3.22 that the Lord has concluded or rather the scripture has concluded all under sin Galatians 3 verse 22. Now let me get back to one of Hagee's major points and that's Matthew 25 which mm -hmm. it appears that the judgment uh, rewards or punishment is in accord with the way the brethren are being treated. When I was hungry, when I was thirsty, you fed me, you didn't feed me. You visited me, you didn't visit me. And that seems to be the, the crux of the reasonings for the judgment there. Hagee very definitively states that these ones whom Jesus is uh, talking about, my brethren, are the Jewish family of his. His Jewish brothers particularly. 
in the same Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 50, when, remember, Jesus was in, in the house and it was crowded and they tell him, look at your mother and your brother and your sisters are outside waiting for you. What does he say? Who is my mother, my brother, mm-hmm. my sister? Those who do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Mm-hmm. That's who his brethren are. In chapter 23, verse 8, he says, Be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Who are those that are brethren? The ones that own Christ as Lord of their life. In chapter 12, again, of Matthew, he says in verse 40, He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent you. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if you give a cup of cold water in my name, you will receive a reward. So it all has to do with the relationship that persons have to Christ Mm -hmm. that are classified as his brethren, as his family, as his people. Those that do the will of God are the people of God. Another major passage that he and all of these TV preachers that are pretty sure that that we're taking up use Genesis chapter 22. Mm-hmm. saying the promise that was stated to Abraham that he would become a father of many nations. He says, I will bless them that bless you and I will curse them that curse you. So in other words, if you do not support Israel, and again, we have to ask the question, who is Israel? Did the, does the New Testament support the idea that we are to give offerings and our monies for national purposes, for political purposes, for... I'm not saying that they, they're not worthy causes. I mean, supporting orphanages wherever they are. Israel, etc. Praise God for that. I mean, no, no, no questions about that. But when you insist that this is how the blessing of, the, of, the, of this verse is fulfilled, by giving financial aid to bring Jews from Russia back into their homeland and to support other causes, is not what the New Testament taught. The offerings that Paul collected from the Gentiles... He says specifically, you can read Romans 15, go through the book of Acts, see the different instances. It was for the poor saints Mm -hmm. at Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. He makes a big distinction. Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't want to push this verse too far, but the Bible says, how can you love those whom God hates? Mm -hmm. Now, there are those among the Jews, and by the way, I have to say, I love the Jewish people. I have gone there out of love to see the country, the history, of course. But I also feel a connectedness there because of the heritage, obviously. You know, the roots, a brother, uh, was it Marvin Wilson wrote the book, um, The Roots of the Christian Faith, something like, along those lines about the, the roots with Father Abraham. And we certainly have that. That's what Romans chapter 11 brings up. There's one olive tree and we've been grafted into it and with them we're partakers of the same roots with them. So we do have a common heritage, the Judeo-Christian one you could say. But try witnessing to an Orthodox Jew sometime and see what kind of reaction. Mention the name of Jesus and you will be, you'll be shellacked with, uh, with fury. Uh, I've experienced that in Brooklyn and Manhattan and in Israel uh, as well with individuals. Um, so I'm not just saying this off the top of my head. Uh, and I'm not saying that this is true of all of them. Uh, keeping in mind, too, that the majority of Jewish people are secular, they're non-observant, and many of them are atheists. You go to Manhattan, for instance, there are many, many Jews in Manhattan, and probably a fraction of them are, um, are observant Jews. So we have to be careful the way we use the word Jews today, or Israel, etc. Um, 
you know, there's been a, a lot of attention that's been given, of course, since 1948 when Israel, you know, was declared to be an independent nation and so on, and they were in their homeland and so on. And I don't have a problem with that. I think any people should have rights to, to property and be able to live, and it's wonderful that they've been able to, to come back. And the question would be, is this a fulfillment of Bible prophecy? That's a big question. <clears throat> and I'm not going to try to propose to answer that question for you today, I wonder what some of them, though, would think about the Holocaust, you know, when six million Jews were exterminated. Was God's hand of judgment on them then for that? And then God's hand of blessing on them for their returning to the land? I I would hold back my my comments on that, leaning in one or the other direction, but it's just something that I throw out, that you have to remember the Holocaust as well as you do as the Jews returning back to their homeland. One of the biggest objections that, that he specifically and some of the other TV preachers would be the idea of calling uh, the church in reference to Israel as being a replacement of Israel or superseding Israel. And I'm not too fond of the word replacement uh, theology either. I'd rather see them as fulfillment theology. I like to think of the Old Testament Israel as the bud and think of the church as the blossom of it. Although there are indications of replacement that I wonder how some of these uh, TV preachers would answer such things as the following regarding replacement. Melchizedek has replaced Aaron forever. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, how can you go back to a temple and Jewish sacrifices? Mm-hmm. Will Jesus and Melchizedek be functioning simultaneously in the Jewish millennium? That's a very contradictory position to be taking. Christ, our lawgiver of life, excuse me, Christ, the giver of life and the Spirit, has replaced Moses, the lawgiver. Mm-hmm. Notice the word replace. The new covenant has replaced the Old Testament. It tells us that it has waned, faded away, petered out, and it has gone permanently being forever replaced with the new and everlasting blood of the new covenant. The temple of believers has replaced the physical temple of the past or any of the future. The true Jew is circumcised in heart by the Spirit and has replaced ethnic Jews as the people of God. The Jerusalem above that is free has replaced the Jerusalem that is below that Paul says in Galatians 4.26 that is in bondage even unto now. And it, would you not think of them as still in bondage? They can't even get on an elevator, the Orthodox Jews, and push the button to go up and down on the Sabbath day. They won't flush the toilet on the Sabbath day, flick a light to turn lights on on the Sabbath day. Has not the New Testament liberated those that belong to the Lord as far as Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage? Not that I think that their, their views of the Sabbath day are biblical anyway and would not have come would not have uh, conformed to the Old Testament teachings on Sabbath keeping either. The seating on Christ of Christ on David's throne has now replaced any future idea of him sitting on it in the future. In Jerusalem, reigning as king and as priest over the temple, over the Jewish people, and over the nations. That would be their strong Jewish millennial view, uh, I think, disturbed by what I just said. The Zion above has replaced the Zion on the earth. We have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels, etc. 
The once for all sacrifice has replaced forever all other sacrifices, past or future. Hebrews 10.14 says, By one offering he has perfected forever them that are sacrificed, them that are sanctified. There remaineth no more offerings for sins. Christ is that final lamb slain forever and never to be um, competed with other sacrifices that could possibly remove sin, sanctify or purify anybody. Jesus, the greatest servant of Yahweh, has replaced the inferior servant Israel. Hosea 11.1 and Matthew 2.15. The Sabbath rest in Christ has replaced the need for present or future Sabbath keeping. Matthew 11.28 Come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. The Jewish feasts have been forever replaced by Jesus and His work. The Passover celebration has forever been replaced by Jesus' judgment death on the cross. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Can you imagine having future celebrations of Passover, whether now or in the future, when Christ is the final Passover offering, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world? The children of faith have replaced the children of the flesh. It says in Galatians 3.26, you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So there are no children of God spiritually that are not ones that have faith in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Remember, Galatians says that there is no... Scripture has concluded that there is no difference. Romans 2.11, thir, uh, 2, Romans 2.11 says that, that there is no respect of persons with God. And he's referring to the Jew and the Gentile there. Circumcision without hands has replaced the circumcision with hands. Colossians 2.11 Circumcision doesn't avail. It's the new creation that does Mm -hmm. avail. The types and shadows have been replaced by the substance. Colossians 2 verse 17. The children of the devil, Jewish unbelievers, have been replaced by the spiritual seed of Abraham. What a wonderful thing that is. John 8, Matthew 8, 11, 12, 1 Peter 2, 9, and especially Galatians chapter 3. Mm -hmm emphasizes that point that we are the spiritual <coughs> seed of Abraham's, which is, of course, what Israel boasted about. Abraham is our father. We can come along and say, Abraham is our father. You can say he's your father from a physical descent standpoint, but we can say that our, our relationship to Abraham is from a spiritual continuity standpoint. Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. Romans 4, if you believe God, it will be counted to you for righteousness. And we then have the same righteousness that Abraham had, therefore making us spiritual children with Abraham and from Abraham, like Abraham. Worship in a sanctified location, the temple for instance, has been, re- has been replaced by spiritual worship in an undesignated place. That was the dispute that Jesus had with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman that says, no, this is the mount where we're supposed to be worshipped. Jesus says, no, not in this mountain, not in Jerusalem, nowhere. But the, but the places, and he's implying, of course, we know from Matthew 18, where the two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of them. So there is not going to be any special sanctified location now or in the future, millennium if you hold to that, where there will be a place where God will be worshipped. 
It's where the two or three are gathered together, like a mm. church like this. When we come together in one place, that's where the Lord says He will meet with us, and that is how He is worshipped in spirit and in truth. So it's not a physical temple. And yet there's such a strong push and emphasis by a lot of these TV preachers about a future temple and the Jews being back in the land, and then the Jews you know, eventually getting possession of the Temple Mount, which you can imagine what effects that will have. It will set off World War III for sure. Mm-hmm. If they, if they try to get that property and say that belongs to us and it's Jewish, God promised it, etc. And you have people like John Hagee and others that are trying to po- force the hand of American politics and even the president. John Hagee says, do you know why Donald Trump got elected president? Was because he supported Israel. He favors Israel. That's the reason why Donald Trump got, he got blessed. Now, now, in other words, God blessed him because he went on a limb and spoke so highly about, I'm going to move the embassy to Jerusalem. I'm, we're going to take care of the Israel, etc., etc. Those are the reasons why John Hagee says Donald Trump became the President of the United States. The old national Israel of God has been replaced by the new Israel of God. Wow. To think that we're, we're Jewish? Well, we are, spiritually speaking. Uh, Romans chapter 2 says, He's not a Jew which is one outwardly, but he's a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. Mm-hmm. Not by the hands of men, but by the Spirit of God. The national children of Abraham have been replaced by the spiritual children of Abraham. Galatians 3.29 That is something that's emphasized in the book of Galatians who had Judaizing teachers that were constantly hounding the early apostles that were going forth to different Gentile cities particularly in diaspora places where Jews would convocate in synagogue fashion um, and because Paul was preaching out of the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God and the Savior for sinners, Jew and Gentile he was persecuted by them for doing that And that's why Paul had to, with strong language in the book of Galatians, try to state how how wrong the Judaizers are in trying to get Gentiles or even converts among Jews uh, to be circumcised or get circumcised because that was appropriate in accord with Mosaic law and so on. Not seeing the transition from the old covenant community of, of beliefs to the new covenant one which is really not merely just a supplement to it but it's really an extension all of these were types and shadows the festivals the sabbath keeping the um, circumcision uh, the temple etc were all pointing forward not to themselves but outside of themselves into the future and when we read the New Testament especially the book of Hebrews we're going to discover that many of these prophecies are fulfilled in type at least in the New Testament age and not in the future when Peter quotes Joel in Acts chapter 2 and says that the spirit that they were, they were hearing them speaking in other languages in other dialects they thought that they were drunk and Peter has to explain that this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel I will pour out of my spirit in the last days upon the handmaidens and so on and that's how that prophecy was fulfilled. So that now, who are the people of God? That becomes a big question. 
um, no way does the New Testament teach that a person has preference because of their national identity. Even the Jews which was told in the New Testament there is no difference. Now someone's going to bring up, of course, what about Romans chapter 11? We cannot ignore that. Romans chapter 11. That's, that's the catch basin, so to speak, for uh, the dispensational and common view that many hold that uh, there's going to be a national restoration of Israel. Okay, I don't have a problem with that. Even if you hold it to a, a large population of the 14 million, let's say 14 million get converted at the very end, are they going to be in the new covenant or in another kind of a covenant? There's only one replacement covenant to the old covenant. The Bible, Bible only talks about two covenants. The first covenant and the second covenant. The old covenant and the new covenant. And when a person gets converted, they are in the new covenant, which means they're in the body of Christ. They're part of the spiritual family of God. And if, and if Jews want to you know, convene in a messianic Jewish congregational fashion. That's that's their choice. I mean, we have Presbyterians, you got Baptists, you got Methodists, you got various denominations with their particular distinctives. And if they want to elaborate on how the Old Testament prophets and, and, and festivals and so on, Sabbath keeping, are fulfilled in the new, and do it in a Jewish context, keeping customs and habits of the of, of their their national heritage. I don't, I don't see a problem with that. I'm, I'm not, personally, I'm not in agreement with it. I'd like to consider myself, and I think we all should, because you hear the expression, I'm a Messianic Jew. Well, I'm, I, will, I want to say to them, I'm a Messianic Gentile. Mm-hmm. All right? I want to boast about that. Jesus is my Messiah, not just yours. Mm-hmm. You know, it says that he shall rise to reign over the Gentile, Romans chapter 15, verse 11 and 12, and right in that context there. So he's not, he's not the Savior of the Jews. We, know, we all know that, of course. He's the Savior of the world. And he has broken down that middle wall of partition that has separated the two one from another. But with John Hagee saying that the Jews don't have to be converted because they're in a special relationship with God that has never changed, that they never rejected Jesus as the Messiah, therefore they're in a safe category, and that's why he can unite with them, support them. There are many rabbis that are close friends and intimately with him. And in this push of Judaism and Jewishness and so on, he pushes to such an extreme, he talks about the prayer cloth. And he wears it from time to time when he, when he preaches. And he'll talk about how this is such a sacred garment. And he says, for instance, in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, um, when you pray, don't go out in the streets and broadcast it and be a hypocrite to get the praise of men. But when you go, go secretly, go into the closet. He says the closet is the prayer cloth, which he he literally goes like this and says, this is what Jesus means when he says, go into the closet. With your prayer cloth, you cover yourself like you're putting yourself inside of a tent and that's the closet. Well, I looked that up and I looked it up in some Jewish commentaries and, and just to see if there was anything to that and not one mentioned it. And that's the thing. Oftentimes, a lot of the TV preachers get away with what they call fresh revelations. Maybe this is not the case with with John Hagee uh, in this instance, but in other instances, yes, like some of the things I talked about, about prophesying, claiming that something, the rapture could take place within six months before the year 2000, talking about eight reasons why America may not survive till 2017, the whole uh, Four Blood Moons book and publications of all of his literature and, and sayings about that. Nothing did happen, by the way. The last of those four blood moons was in 2015 in September. What what happened? You know, 
maybe he can find something on record possibly, but it's not anything that woke the world up, didn't shock, shock anybody. Well, anyway, these are some of the concerns that we should have. And I'll go back to what I originally said. If you're Pentecostal and you agree with the, their pneumatology, their soteriology, their theology, and their eschatology, you, you're going to have less of a problem with these TV preachers. The Joel Osteens, the jo Joseph Princes, and all of these others, it's not going to be radical for you. The problem that a Pentecostal would have would be the... the uh, the prosperity message, the word faith message, that that's that's a, a big part of their their, their 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 preachings, and many conservative Pentecostals would object to this push on you can be he healthy and wealthy, and that's what God promises to you if you be faithful to Him, and so on. Well, anyway, I think I've said enough, and I think I hopefully have shown to you why I think He is the most e e the most influential. And I think the most dangerous evangelical in the world today, there's no one that I know of. I mean, Billy Graham certainly had a connection with politics, but I think it was a positive one. I think it was strictly gospel-oriented. Maybe a little, maybe more than that, but I don't think we would find any fault with Billy Graham's connected. He played golf with John Kennedy. He'd been in the White House many times. Even George Bush invited him into the White House the night for prayer before he called the, the, the war in, in the Gulf as being a war. And that was after prayer and Billy Graham's presence with him. We're not talking about something like that. And I'm not saying that John Hagee is not a godly man, that he doesn't love the Lord. I'm not saying that he's not even a Christian. Of course not. I think from what I hear, when he preaches the gospel and what he believes about Christ and sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ and salvation, I, I can say amen to that. But there are a number of these other things that was, I'm not a Pentecostal. Reformed people aren't Pentecostal. Uh, our, our pneumatology, soteriology, theology, eschatology is different from theirs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Barry had mentioned, and I think maybe, well, Pat didn't get into this because uh, Joel Osteen doesn't hold it, but uh, Barry did last week talking about Joyce Myers and her belief that after Jesus died that he went to hell and he was punished for hell. Well, I heard and Andrew Womack the other day say the same thing, that Jesus, after he died, he went to hell. He did not go to hell after his death. Right. We, we were, I'm not going to get into the, to, to the, uh, the teaching of that, but their idea was that Christ went to hell, was punished, he suffered in hell, not fully on the cross. He had to complete the suffering in hell for three days. And then afterward, he became the first born-again person uh, of born-again people. Like, where did they get that from? <laughs> Show me in the scriptures. And that's the problem. When you, when you allow yourself to hold that idea of fresh revelations, anything can go. Okay, so I'll close this part of me. We can take a few more minutes if anybody has a question or comment of what was presented. Nice uh, Wally. Yeah. In Jeremiah 31, I believe it's verses 31 through 34, it talks about our covenant that was made with the nation of Israel that they broke. When they broke the covenant, that to me shows me that there is a separation uh, between the nation of Israel and God. And uh, Christ. And, and I think that it's important because there are Jews who believe in Jesus, but and, and, and that's great. Those are the Messianic Jews. But as far as the nation uh, <coughs> being held off to a, a separate uh, uh, call it, a separate reward, uh, I, I can't do that. 
Well, we're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That's the new covenant people of God. And it has, it has replaced and superseded, certainly, the old covenant. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. Better things, better land, better this, better that, better sacrifices, better tabernacle, better, better mountain, better Savior, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for sure. Barry. I, I read a little about him uh, too recently. And he, he said it's sort of that uh, he, Jesus never offered himself as Messiah. So my question would be, what was... Judging from what he has said, I would say that, yes, that's right. He did not come to offer himself as a Messiah to the Jews, so they really didn't reject him. Therefore, there's no guilt that they had or continue to have about their attitude towards Jesus. So, so you could be you could despise Jesus or you could even deny that he's a part of the Trinity, that he's God. Of course, a Jew would adamantly oppose that. And rightfully so, they should. If they're going to be consistent with their own theology, they're not favorable to Jesus. Yes, they'll look at him as a historical figure. He was a prophet. There's some good that came from Jesus' teachings, certainly, but he's definitely not in the category of someone who they would revere or worship. That to them would be blasphemous. Yeah, they would say Pilate and Herod, those were the two, the princes of this world, so to speak, that came together and agreed that Jesus should be crucified. Although, I mean, the Jew, Pilate offered the Jews to Jesus to the Jews, what will you have me to do with this man? Behold your king. We have no king, they said, but, but, but Caesar, crucify him. Yeah, I mean, no, he would say that what they were rejecting was that they were rejecting the fact that, like, like, like he says, that it was, the, it was the Jews who wanted to make Jesus the Messiah and King that Jesus rejected. Okay, so they didn't reject him. He rejected those who wanted to make him Messiah because from his perspective, it wasn't the time for the Jews to, to come in. It's very confusing. It's very anti-biblical. He's got tons of criticism. He's labeled for that alone as being a heretic because it destroys the, the, the commissioning of the gospel beginning at Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the other... Where does it begin the gospel? Jerusalem. Obviously, it's to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And what would you say to the Jew if God requiring you to repent? Peter's message was that you have with wicked hands taken and crucified the Lord of glory. His blood is on your hands. Go ahead, your next question. Um, it's actually common about Billy Graham. Nikki and I went to his museum in North Carolina in Charleston last year, and it's fascinating. You go through his entire life, and it's all about the gospel. Like, it's not, you know, your modern-day team preaching. But it's just fascinating. If anyone, you know, is down in the area, to go check it out. Sure. Um... I, I just mentioned Billy Graham because he is, to my mind, the most... Ken, then, uh, uh, you have any They all hold to the Christ reign is postponed. That what? Did I hear you Christ reign is postponed? That his physical reign, yeah, that, that he's not on, on David's throne right now, but he will be when he comes back to the earth and reigns from Jerusalem. So they all hold to a Jewish millennium. Now, somebody like Joel Osteen does not get in heavy in theology or eschatology, but others would um, get into these kinds of things, particularly John Hagee. is probably uh, in, in Joseph Prince, uh, but Hagee particularly because he's a, he's a, uh, a last days man and uh, has ideas about conspiracy and the Jews and so on. Um, 
he's strongly prophetical. Because that would just say that Joseph Prince, as far as I know, wouldn't say that Christ's reign is postponed, but if there's a physical aspect to it, maybe that's where I was Yeah, I mean, uh, reformed people believe that Christ is risen and is sitting on the throne of David now. Um, he's, he's reigning. He's certainly going to come and reign in the future in a physical way. But dispensationalists generally do not believe that Christ is reigning as king over the church right now because the relationship that the church has to Christ is Christ to the head. The body, he's the head, we're the body. He's the savior, we're his people. He's not viewed as a king. King has to do with, they think, with, with the physical land, with, with the rule on earth, etc. And it's confined to that rather than a current rule. But that's not a major point of theirs. But that's just a general point of dispensationalism. And you can, that, that could be challenged. And I'm not sure that all of them would necessarily deny that Jesus is reigning right now, but they would try to limit that reign because the emphasis is so strong on the future reign that the present reign is minimized. Harrison? So I asked this question last week about Joyce Meyer to Barry. Well, you say he's dangerous. He's teaching How is he dangerous in what specifically? Yeah, how he be to us individually? I mean, as, 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 as persons, that's a good answer. Yeah, he, he's saying, how is how is John Hagee dangerous to us? I said how he's dangerous in the political realm because I think he can turn the tide of the political stand stand towards Israel in a way that is not fear, it's not just, it it, it gives. Israel is pre- preeminence, and if you can convince politicians that the Jews are God's people forever, and that the land belongs to them, that the, pr- the promises of the land have not been revoked, that they have not been fulfilled, therefore, if you're not standing with Israel and giving them the land, then you're against God. So, if individuals embrace that, and I think it, he, can, he appeals to everybody to give money for the cause of bringing the Jews back into the land, helping them in the land, and so on. He's donated millions of dollars to the nation of Israel. He's very good friends with, with, with Netanyahu, for instance. Uh, who wouldn't be? I mean, just giving that kind of money, raising that kind of money to help the Jews in Israel. So he would say that if we don't follow suit with that, we are somehow outside of God's covenant promises. Yeah, and he says if, if you're not for them, then you're against God. So it really puts you kind of in a corner like, wow, I've got to be supportive of Israel or else I'm going to be on oath with the Christian community sometimes. Uh, we get above what you've been I just want to say that does present another gospel in a sense. If we don't have to evangelize them because they have this special relationship with God. Or he I says if you're, not, if you're not for Israel, you're against God, then clearly that's... I mean, we have some Jewish people in our church mm-hmm. that have national ethnic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. They need to be saved like anybody else does. Amen. But it is 1029. I do have to close. And uh, we can talk more about it on a, on a private basis Amen. if you want. But anyway, you, you've got kind of a research of what I did on, on John Hagee. All right. Um, uh, the